my guests on today's podcast are my friends Anne and Lauren Brown. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, this couple, I'll introduce them to you before we get going so you kind of get an idea of what we're going to talk about. We said a prayer before we get started, and we pray this podcast will be helpful for you. Um, Lauren and Anne are married. They have three children, um, two boys and a girl. They're in their, I would think, in your late 30s, the two of you. I'm 36. I'm 42. Okay, there you go. So this is a couple we're just going to say kind of rounding. Well, you heard their ages, and that's great. Um they both uh, met at BYU and have um, education from BYU. Anne um, received a master's degree in marriage and family therapy from BYU. It is a marriage and family therapist. Um, Lauren got an undergraduate degree in psychology and then a PhD in counseling psychology, also from BYU. And they went to Pullman, Washington. You may recognize that's the home of Washington State University five years ago where Lauren is a licensed psychologist working at Washington State University. Um, Lauren's going to still, this is an active LDS couple. Um, Lauren's going to share his story as a queer Latter-day Saint. Um, and that's a, and he's going to talk about labels. He's written an article in 2015 that's in a BYU publication. We'll reference in the podcast description, talk about labels. But from a professional standpoint, and a personal standpoint, Lauren has wonderful insights about this. Um, Lauren talked to, to his wife before they were married about not being straight. Um, but our hope is that those of you that are LGBTQ and perhaps new in this journey or younger, that the things Lauren shares will be helpful for you. Um, it's a unique story, and I'm really glad they both stepped forward to share their story. The other part that's unique about Lauren's story is he is an identical twin, and that in itself is unique. Um, but also his twin brother is gay and has been married to a man for about four years. Um, they both serve missions. And I think some of us would quickly just assume that Lauren's gay and because his identical twin brother is gay. And we kind of sometimes get these narrative in our head, listeners, where we want to, we have a narrative and then we hear things and we kind of want to use that to fit our narrative. But what I invite our listeners to do and what many of these stories about are sort of just the uniqueness of everybody's personal journey. Um, so our hope is that as Lauren shares his story, that additional insight will come into your life to help others. And if you're LGBTQ or queer, that the things Lauren share will be helpful for you. Is that okay for an introduction? Yeah, that's great. Let's just talk about this label queer, Lauren, and just share with our listeners who you are and your journey. So uh, it's been, it definitely has been a journey for me, um, as I think it is for most people as they're exploring, uh, exploring what label feels right for them. For most of, I guess for most of the time that I've been exploring and, and coming to understand my sexuality, my sexual orientation, um, I had the experience of not finding a label that fit very well for me. Uh, I think when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I probably then said things along the lines of, I, you know, I struggle with same-sex attraction. I don't really see it that way anymore. Um, but it was difficult to find a word that fit for me. Uh, as I got older in college, on my mission, after my mission, uh, I, I would hear people talk about their experience of what 
being gay meant to them or being bisexual meant to them. And it wouldn't really fit for me. Sometimes I would hear people talk about um, who they're attracted to, what type of relationships they want to have. And I just felt like I, to be authentic to myself, I couldn't use any of these labels because they just didn't fit for me. The, there are advantages to that. Uh, it helps to to really value authenticity and to say, I'm going to be true to myself and I'm only going to use ways of describing myself and my identities that feel true to me. I think there's something that's really feels really authentic and really empowering about that. But in my case, and in the case of other people who don't identify with a particular label, uh, it really also felt lonely. Um, it It's hard for you to know, like, so where's my group? What... Uh, what group do I join? What what Facebook group do I search for? Um, and and then also it gets really complicated when you want to share something with someone important to you. Maybe you feel like you have someone you could trust and you want to tell them about your story, tell them about your sexual orientation. You want to come out to them. Well, it's really it's a little more complicated when you're trying to come out and you don't feel like you have a label that perhaps is really clear to them what it means, or even maybe really clear to you. Um, I, I, I joke about it where it's like, you know, what do we put on the cake when we have the coming out party? It's like, and, and even describing, I would often describe myself as I identify somebody who's not straight, but I also didn't particularly like that because, yeah, why? Um, because it, it kind of emphasizes what you're not rather than what you are. Um, and so that makes it seem like that's actually, there's something wrong with that, right? That I'm that's like, a really powerful answer, actually. I've never thought of that. It identifies as what you're not, which right. sort of dismisses who you are. I think most of us would feel really uncomfortable with our friends and loved ones who uh, are people of color if they said, I identify as not white. Um, we'd say like, white isn't like the best. It isn't the race that should be the reference point. Their, their lived experiences is real and authentic and we shouldn't have it tied to what they are not, but rather celebrating what they are. And so I feel like that's, that was true for me too, but I just was in a tricky spot because I would say I identify as not straight, but I didn't have a word that fit for me at the time, um, to that that kind of encapsulated what I was. So if there was if there was a t space to talk, um, I could sit down and have a conversation with someone, like I did with my wife when we were first getting to know each other and becoming friends, um, or I did with some other important people in my life who I could trust. I had paragraphs to share with them. I could I could give them more words and more descriptions. And so that was okay. They could hear about my journey without me needing to have a particular label. But um, but even the experience sometimes of filling out a form or participating in, uh, like as a psychology student, sometimes you get the opportunity to participate in surveys and research that they're trying to gather data. Um, and it, as somebody who didn't identify with a particular label, if your options were, do you identify as gay, bisexual, straight? Sometimes they'll put other, feels uncomfortable to check the box other, or they may even put a space where they say self-identify. 
but still for for those of us who have had times where there just isn't a label that fits for us it gets complicated and i suppose sometimes it even gets a little frustrating to other people like explain that they may want to know like well so it, it, i guess it creates a question for them like so what what are you or how do you identify they they want kind of an answer to that question and so the the question mark is uncomfortable and i think that's something that there's lots of areas of our lives where we have a blank a question mark a blank space and we want to fill in the blank and when there isn't something to fill in the blank with i think it just feels kind of a little disconcerting a little uncomfortable it's you know i when i hear somebody is queer uh, it does make me and i recognize and you can help us understand this that's an umbrella label mm-hmm. um it does make me want to you know say okay i know you're using that label but you're probably just there's probably something underneath that umbrella term that you identify as and you're just using this in a dollar term. I think what you're teaching me is that is how I'm identifying because right. the underlying sort of categories of queer don't fit me. And I've never really met anybody that just says queer is really the best thing for me. It's not, it's not just an umbrella term. It is the very best label for me because all these sub labels underneath queer don't fit who I am. Is that fair? Yeah, that is. That's a, that's a really great way of describing it. And yeah, because I would want to like, okay, come on, tell me, you bi, are you gay? Or, right. And it, and I think you're, and I realize, help me, help our listeners understand why if someone says, okay, you're just not really owning up to being bi or gay, you're just kind of, I don't know what, what the right vocabulary is. You're just kind of taking on this label to not really be authentic to who you are. And I'm sorry to say that out loud because I would assume that's kind of triggering. No, that's... But I'm, that's will you okay. answer that question? Because in case anybody's asking the same question that are just listening. I think that we naturally, like I was talking about, where we want to fill in the blank, um, we, we do that in so many areas of our life, um, and it's probably helpful. Um, uh like just regular human behavior, like as we're trying to figure out, is this somebody I can trust? Is um, this person a good fit for my company? If I'm an employer, um, does this person seem religious or spiritual or do they not? Do I have a guess? Do I think this person is a Democrat or a Republican or not very politically minded at all? Like we, we just have a lot of situations where we meet people and we try to make some guesses about them. And there's something really normal about that. And I think there's something that's really helpful about that. Like when I'm teaching my children um, about how to behave around strangers, like I really want them to have in their mind some things that they're looking for that help us teach them the ways to be safe. And, um, and so I think this idea of we want to fill in the blanks, we want to figure things out, really does make sense in some areas of our life. But it gets problematic when it comes to a place where we start telling someone's story like for them in our own heads. Like, and that idea that like I somehow know your story better than you do, or I know your story beyond what you've told me. Wow. I'm, I'm filling in the gaps. Um, and so... I think this happens very often with sexual orientation. 
um, somebody will say nothing about their sexual orientation. They haven't come out. They haven't said anything. And they may say some of their hobbies or interests or things they don't like, or maybe even just the way that they speak, uh, the way they use like their body posture, their, or if they use their hands to talk. And somebody might think, oh, I'm pretty sure that they're gay. And I'm thinking they didn't say anything about it, but it's this idea of I'm trying to, trying to make some guesses or figure things out. Um, and so when we don't have all the blanks filled in, when we have some question marks about someone, it's just a natural tendency, I think, for us to fill it in. And so even when somebody uses the word queer, sometimes that may still leave some question marks for you. They're like, so you're saying queer, but like, but what kind of queer? Or are you, what are you actually? Um, and I think there's this curiosity and this desire to fill in the question marks. Um, and yet for someone like myself, it really is now in my life, it is the word that fits for me as as my identity. Like it is the term that I would use. Um, there isn't another one underneath that. And I recognize that to some people that may still leave them with some questions. Um, and I'm happy to have conversations with people and a chance to explain it. I think there's a lot of richness when we talk more about it and give more depth and explanation to it. Because you could even have two people who say, I identify as gay. And what your mind fills in as, oh, I think I know what that means, may mean very different things when you actually see what it means to them. What does that word mean to them? How do they live their life? So um, maybe that maybe that helps clarify it a little bit. That's a really helpful segment for me. I'm just kind of giving Lauren the thumbs up as this idea that our minds, mind, mind does this, listeners. So I assume some of you, you fill in the blanks and you want to, you want to fill in your story and you want to kind of get ahead of the actual individual person. I recognize when I do that, and I, I, it doesn't make your life any easier. Yeah. And I like what you suggested is to ask questions of you versus sort of decide what the story is of you. Yeah. Because uh, I think we, that's the way we honor our baptism covenants and there's a lot of you, we're all unique. I'd love to go back to this conversation. I assume it was multiple conversations when you two were dating because perhaps there's other queer Latter-day Saints out there that are um, thinking about marriage. Um, they're queer and who they're dating is straight and they just want to kind of navigate this space and they they have hope that they can, you know, I, I'm using the term a heterosexual marriage. If that's a, you know, when one's, that's a mixed orientation marriage. Anyway, it's a man and a woman being married together, if I'm using the right vocabulary. But I'd just love to hear any advice you have for couples that are considering that road. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll share some of my thoughts and then I think it would be great Um uh, for my wife to share some of her thoughts about this as well. I think that one of the things that's really important in any deep, significant relationship, family, a deep friendship, but especially in romantic relationships, is can I show up as my full, authentic self with this person and, and that they will, this person will 
love me and be there for me. Um, and, and not even, it's not even saying like, oh, I can um, maybe tolerate some of these things about you, um, but more that like, I, I love you because of these things, because you're showing up as your real authentic self. I think that's really important in relationships. And it, at least it certainly was for me in, um, as I developed friendships and also with people that I dated and especially in getting to know Anne. Um, and so there were things that we had talked about not related to my sexual orientation, but things that we had already talked about that helped me to know that this was somebody who was safe to talk to. This was somebody who had the ability to hold space for different ways of being in the world and, and didn't hold a lot of really rigid ideas about like, there's only one way to be LDS or there's only one way to be a college student or um, whatever the case may be. So there were things that really helped her feel like a safe person for me to talk to. And so I would say that issue of safety is probably the number one consideration when you're thinking about, is this someone that I want to talk to and, and share about myself is do I feel safe to do so? And can can we know ahead of time, I guarantee that it's going to go well and, and that they're going to 100% accept everything we say? No, and also they are on their own journey too. And so when you talk to a potential romantic partner, they're gonna have their own experiences. Um, but I would say it's important to be thoughtful about it and look for things that help you feel like you have that sense of safety. I don't know, what else would you add? I think one of the most important things that was going on in my mind is that I wasn't about curing anything or changing anything about you. And that would have gone really badly. I think there's some people have a perception that like marriage is the cure for at that point it was same sex attraction. But as we talked, I mean, we, we, how long did we date? We dated for, I mean, on and off for four years. <laughs> so it wasn't a quick decision. We had a lot, a lot of time where we got to know each other and we really dug deep. We both like to do that though. We both really like to talk about intimate things, deep things. So I think having it, not having that mindset, but simply being open. And I, in the end, I really think we just decided we like each other a lot, that the labels didn't matter. And they do. <laughs> uh, they really actually have been helpful in different ways for us at different times. But, but to decide to get married, it was really all about, well, obviously this is the person I want to be with. We like each other that much. We'd rather be together. We'll figure the rest out. Yeah, and I, I would say I, I had multiple experiences where I felt like I could show up as my full and authentic self, that I could talk about these experiences. I could talk about my past. Um, I could share things that were difficult for me. And I knew that my relationship with Anne was a safe place, a safe space to do that. Um, and that has made it that much more significant as change and growth happens over the course of a, a relationship. And so 
even though we had some conversations when we were dating, we've had multiple conversations over the course of our marriage. And even more recently, like as I um, last year had an experience where I felt like queer now is the right label for me, the very first person, like just minutes after that experience happened, who did I go tell? I went and found Anne who was sitting in the living room and I sat down and I told her, um, and I said, I, I need to share this thing that just happened and how I'm feeling. And, and to me, that just shows kind of that, that history that was built up of multiple experiences that helped her be the safe person. And so not only was it safe, but it was, I was even excited. Like I'm excited to share this significant thing that just happened. Um, yeah. I think one of the things that's really important though, is that we're taught to fear these things. And I mean, in some ways for good reason, we actually, one of my friends was dating somebody who dealt with same sex attraction, according to the vernacular they used at the time and their relationship, they got married. We were at the wedding. It did not go well. That's, you know, and so I felt like maybe we gave them bad advice <laughs> and that, that, I don't know, everybody has to figure it out for themselves. But the, the thing that that's the example that's often held up is when things don't work out, when somebody actually is gay and is, you know, not, coming to terms with it or wanting to marry a woman anyway or or whatever. And so with that image always being held up, fear is a natural response when somebody says, I'm not like everybody else. And you're like, whoa, okay. But I never felt like we were being led by fear. Lots of understanding. Definitely not being incautious. I mean, we were wanting to deeply understand first before we moved ahead with anything. That's probably how we're built, mm -hmm. <laughs> being therapists. But yeah, if, if fear had entered into the picture in any major way, I don't think it would work. And even now, if I felt like he was always on the edge of something else, then our relationship would be horrible. That's a, it's a really good segment applies to all relationships. You know, the things you're teaching, it's kind of, we're really fortunate to have both of you here because you have all this clinical training plus your life story that brings great insight into this topic for our listeners. I love this line. I wrote it down and circled it. I can show up as my full authentic self for Anne. Mm -hmm. And I like it. <laughs> I like it. How cool is that? And I just think that it's got to be a fundamental element of a healthy marriage and a healthy relationship. And if you're listening and says, I can't do that at this point, I, I hope that you're able to do that eventually in your marriage. Um, that may take some time if your full authentic self has sort of been kept from your partner for a long time. Yeah. And that didn't happen in your case. And younger couples are able to do that. And I don't want to make too much of a binary seems like um, older couples didn't have the skills or even were taught to do that. And so we know those difficult stories. I love, Anne, where you're talking about being not led by fear. When you, there's not a lot of fear as you two, as you described, just kind of falling in love with Lauren. And you just decided after spending this much time together, you just wanted to spend, you know, all the time together and raise your family together. And 
I would think the transition from this relationship to marriage wasn't a very dramatic one because you just knew each other so well and you had spent so much time together. We've yeah. got some unmarried kids that are sort of on this, like culturally we get married awfully quick sometimes. And we, and I don't want to say that's the wrong thing, but I love that this is a four-year relationship and that's part of your story and that you didn't sort of, I don't know if you felt cultural pressure to get married quicker than four years. Any thoughts on that? I think that for us, it was a friendship first, and then it turned into a romantic relationship. And so a lot of our communication back and forth was just deepening the friendship. Um, and so I didn't feel any uh, cultural pressure. Also, we met before I went on my mission, and we communicated back and forth while I was serving my mission. Um, and then um, when I came back from my mission, you know, we reconnected as well. So, um, so I think that probably helped that I had like a two-year period where all we could do was really was connect and share thoughts and feelings back and forth, but there was no pressure to do anything because I was busy being a full-time missionary for the church. And where did you serve? I served in the McAllen, Texas mission, which is right on the U.S.-Mexican border in the southern tip of Texas. And I've heard everybody speak Spanish in that mission. It's a bilingual mission because you never know when you so knock every, on the door, is it going to yeah, be bilingual. English, Spanish, Everybody's, or a mix of the both? That's great. Yeah. Um, I've mentioned this on the podcast before and in my book, but one of the greatest spiritual rebukes I've gotten since I stepped in this space was I thought all mixed orientation marriages failed. That was the story that had been created in my brain. You kind of mentioned it, Dan, because those were the only ones I was aware of. And then I started to do podcasts with couples in mixed orientation marriages, and I just got, I just, the Rojas were the first couple I did. Um, they were both here. And I just, it was one of the greatest spiritual rebukes because I just felt the beauty of their marriage. Mm -hmm. It was authentic. It was real. It was every good as any marriage I was aware of. And and I share, I'm talking to the Browns here, but I'm really talking to anybody that was in the same space I was. And I used to sort of, and sometimes there's this narrative out in culture to live your truth. You've got to do it this way. And they create a story for you if you're going to live your truth. And and maybe you can comment on this. I've just recognized everybody needs to receive personal revelation for their truth. And my mm -hmm. job is not to sort of do that for them or to doubt the revelation they get is just to support them um, and to not sort of kind of be looking over my shoulder waiting for your marriage to blow up because it fits the story in my brain. <laughs> but actually really hopeful your marriage, like all marriage, succeed. And it's an authentic, real, living your truth type marriage. So that's just kind of my journey. And any thoughts on that? Yeah. I think that um, one of the areas where I sense this of, of other people maybe having an idea about my relationship with my wife is when I'm compared to my twin brother. Uh, my identical twin brother... Uh, he is gay. He has been married to his wonderful partner uh, for four years. Anne and I were so happy to go to their wedding um, and be an important part of it. And, um, and we just have such a close relationship with both of them. We, we love getting chances to see them and having them in our home and interacting with them. Um, we love them so much. 
I think that when people hear about the fact that I'm a twin and then they hear that my twin brother is gay and is not in the LDS church and is in a same-sex marriage, uh, they, I think they make they make some uh, assumptions or it starts, they start to tell a story in their mind. Um, and so they, um, may conclude that, uh, my twin brother and I are the same person. And so they may see him as being the most authentic. Like he, he's living his authentic life. He is fully embracing who he is. And they may see me as somebody who, due to perhaps some internalized homophobia or teachings of the LDS church or, or whatever it may be, that I have chosen not to be authentic. Um, on the flip side, there may be some people within the LDS church, active people who would look at me and and look at him and compare us. And they'll tell a story about me as being like the faithful one, the one who made the right choice. And they may see him as someone who could have chosen otherwise, because look, you know, his twin brother is doing it. And I think that already is based on this assumption that we are the same person or that our stories are the same. And they're already, they're already telling a story in, in their mind. And so I think that's really interesting how people will tend to tell a story to themselves about his marriage or about my marriage, um, about our relationships and what they're, what they're like, um, instead of getting a chance to actually talk to us and, and hear about them. And, and if you talked to both of us, if, you know, if my twin brother were here, if we were both sitting here and talking about it, I think you would hear us talk about how our choices in our lives and our relationships are the most authentic things that we have done. Like we have, we have made choices based on what matters most to us. And we have found partners who are the best fit for us are helping us to grow in the ways we need to grow. And um, yeah, and, and so that it's not, it's really not a fair comparison to, to kind of put us side by side. And, and in our case, that happens often because people like to compare identical twins. But I think that other people will do that when they meet someone and they'll say, well, I know so-and-so, like my, my friend or my cousin or something is whatever, fill in the blank, and they did it differently. And so we'll start to um, kind of assume that we'll start to kind of mesh people together and say like, well, I know somebody who did this, and so you should be like them, or it's possible. But recognizing that everyone's version of what authentic and real looks like for them is going to be really different. It's a really good segment. Why did you go to your brother's wedding? Same-sex wedding is committed Latter-day Saints that yeah. might be helpful for other listeners that are just navigating this space. My um, relationship with my brother is um, one of the most treasured relationships in my life. Um, I mean, we shared a womb together, like, you know, we go back a long ways. And I have been with him through a lot of the ups and downs. So um, multiple times after um, a relationship ended with someone, 
for either of us, you know, we would go to the other person for comfort or support. And so I, I was there for times when, when he attempted to date a woman and the relationship ended. I was times, I was there with him for times when he, um, was dating a man and that relationship ended and like talking about the, the heartbreak and being kind of a safe space for him. And so, he and I have been so open with each other and been going on this journey um, for all of our lives. And so um, I was so happy because I had, I had seen how challenging and difficult and painful um, this road has been for him in, in coming out and making choices that are in congruence with his truth. Um, it's, it's a, inspiring thing to see, but I also know how hard it is. And so um, when he shared that he had found his partner and that this relationship was getting really serious and it was going really well, and then when things moved towards um, them getting engaged and then them getting married, um, I just felt joy for him um, because this is exactly what I've wanted for him. I want him to find happiness in his life, just like I know he wants that for me. And um, it was it was interesting because it was challenging uh, for some of our family members and extended family members. Everyone has to kind of think through what feels right for them. But I know that was um, something kind of painful for them as they were so excited to celebrate their marriage and invite people to come. But they really wanted people to come who were going to be excited and happy to see them get married. And, um, and so I know it brought up some questions um, for family members, as I think that often does for people when they're like, how do, you know, what's the best way for me to show love? What's also the best way for me to feel true to my values? Um, it was, it was challenging. Um, and I know that um, we had an opportunity for, um, for a job interview uh, a potential job at BYU, um, an opportunity to speak with one of the general authorities. Um, we spoke with, spoke with Elder Baxter, um, and um, we had the chance to talk about our feelings and share some of our thoughts about it. And, and Elder Baxter said in such a kind and loving way, um, his, his impression, and, it, and we didn't go because Elder Baxter said that we should go, but like just his own thoughts were that um, the most important thing is family. The most important thing is helping people feel connected and remember that they are always part of our family, um, even if their choices mean that they're not choosing to be in the church anymore. Family is sort of the fundamental unit of of our faith and of our life and of the human experience. Like we believe in family so strongly. And so that just helped us feel really, I guess, an extra uh, layer of comfort in, in going and celebrating what we knew was um, just such a blessing for my brother's life. And, and it's been such a blessing for our lives too, as his partner has joined our family. It's a great segment. As his partners joined our family, our family's blessed. Talk about, because some parents maybe, you know, this, I'm thinking your brothers, and I'm thinking of parents, but it applies to siblings. 
Now, what would you say to a 40 or 56-year-old parent whose daughter or son is going to a same-sex marriage and they're worried about their eternal family, they're worried about the next life, they're worried about that person being outside the teachings of the church and stepped away from the church? What I, Can you give any, and I'm sure you've done this before, what would you say just to help feel help them feel peace i think about um i think about the example in the scriptures of the prodigal son and in using this example not trying to make the connection that somebody who is gay is similar to the prodigal son in in the sense of like you know going and wasting their inheritance or making making um sort of poor choices that we feel like we see the prodigal son making in the in the story as it's told. But the part that I want to highlight is that like when he returns home, his father runs out and embraces him and doesn't have a long list of questions about like, where were you? Um, or I'm not sure if we can accept you back into our home or our family. It's kind of awkward. Instead, he just, you know, sees his son from afar off and he runs out and, um, and embraces him. And I think the power of that story is showing the strength of family relationships um, that isn't, it isn't a love that's conditioned on um, needing to be in complete agreement with all the choices that a child um, or a friend or a family member makes. Um, And so I think that, I mean, as a, as a professional, as a psychologist, I know how many of our LGBTQ youth and, and individuals have thoughts of suicide. Um, and some of it is this desperate loneliness that they feel when they feel like I don't have connections to people who love me and who will be there for me. And so I, I would say my, my piece of advice is really thinking about how important life is and how important family relationships are um, and to put those at a higher priority, um, uh, to put those first, like, like love and a family member who knows that like, no matter what, I'm still part of this family and, and you'll still love me and I can come home and walk through the door and you'll let me be here and you'll let me sit down and share a meal with you. You'll, you know, that I can be here. Like I, that's what I hope we can create homes as spaces for that. Um, I know it's not always easy and sometimes we're wrestling with our own questions um, and our own discomfort. Um, But I think that as much as possible as we can try to help people feel loved and know that they, and strengthen those family bonds, I think that is, um, at least from an LDS perspective, to me that feels like one of the greatest examples of practicing love, you know, Christ-like love and, and what we are called to do. Lauren, you talked earlier in the podcast about a recent development identifying as queer. Will you share with our listeners your journey to take on that label? Yeah, that's, it was a bit of a surprise for me because prior to that, I think similar to some other people, I had more of a negative connotation with the word queer, thinking about how historically it has been used as a rather derogatory term. And, um, but I also have been so inspired by people who have been reclaiming that term 
and finding their own definitions in it. So it came about actually um, through reading the Book of Mormon. So I was reading the Book of Mormon in Spanish um, and um, reading it one morning. And it's interesting because this is a, a part that I wouldn't normally have thought would be terribly significant. Um, this is in First Nephi chapter 18. Um, and in this part of the Book of Mormon, uh, Nephi is uh, talking about building the boat that they're going to use to cross the, the ocean. And um, I'll, I'll read it in, in English, but I'm also going to highlight a couple of the words in, in the Spanish verses. But in verses 1 and 2, it says... And it came to pass that they did worship the Lord and did go forth with me, and we did work timbers of curious workmanship. And the Lord did show me from time to time after what manner I should work the timbers of the ship. And then verse 2, Now I, Nephi, did not work the timbers after the manner which was learned by men, neither did I build the ship after the manner of men, but I did build it after the manner which the Lord had shown unto me, wherefore it was not after the manner of men." Um, and when I read this verse, I had, um, almost like the beginning of a, of a feeling of like something really, a really big insight is coming, um, and almost feeling like that sensation of the, the floor is about to kind of open up underneath you, like, um, or you're going to like fall off your chair. Like it was, um, I could sense like sort of a big insight coming and with a strong presence of the spirit. And the part that really stood out to me when I read this is that Nephi is talking about he's building a boat in a way that does not make sense to men. Um, That's different than the way that men would say, this is how you build a boat. And, but he's doing it in a way that is between him and the Lord and figuring that out. And that word curious, curious workmanship, Um, The idea that somebody else looking at the way that Nephi is building this boat would say, that looks strange to me, or maybe even that seems wrong. That's not how you're supposed to do it. And and even Nephi himself is saying, this seems unusual to me. I don't know if Nephi had experience working with timber prior to this, but but he's able to say, like, I'm doing it according to the way the Lord is showing me. And um, especially like in the Spanish uh, version, the last part of verse two, when it in, when it's saying like it was not after the manner of men, it's um, no fue conforme a la manera de los hombres, conforme like conforming to. That part really stood out to me too, like not conforming to the way that men would do it or that people would do it, um, and so. When I thought about curious, that led me to the word peculiar. And sometimes we use that in our history, Latter-day Saints being referred to as a peculiar people. And curious and peculiar, both in my mind in that moment, became synonyms with the word queer. Um, which queer, historically as a word, has some ideas of you know doing things in a strange or a different way. And so I had this moment where I thought Nephi is building a boat in we could say a queer manner, kind of the way that the word queer used to be used historically. But then I had the insight of what it meant for me when it referred to my own sexual orientation. And so I just felt so strongly in that moment 
that I am building the boat of my life. I'm living my life and building my identity in a way that other people might say, that seems strange or that does not make sense to us, or even that's not how you're supposed to do it, but that it's the way the Lord is showing me to do it. Um, and then it might even not make sense to me. It might feel, it might seem strange, but at the end, probably at the end of my life, you know, I may have the experience like Nephi where I look back on what I've built and I call it good. That's a cool segment. Just more thoughts of that segment. Um, are there other, ver other sort of, because the boat's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Everything that Nephi did, as far as that that chapter resulted in great good and great accomplishment of the Lord's plan. Any more thoughts just on the totality of those that what you're sharing with us and your yeah. life? And the the boat is going to carry Nephi and his family safely to a place where they're going to experience abundance and where they're going to experience joy and some heartache too, um, as we know how it plays out. But, um, but it's this promised land and the boat leads them there. And for me, when I think about living my life, not conforming to what other people tell me my life should look like, whether it's other active Latter-day Saints, whether it's um, a strong, you know, uh, advocates for LGBTQ rights and equality, where I think they're doing amazing work, whether it's people who approach it from kind of an academic lens, whether it's maybe what a therapist thinks or my parents or whoever it is. Um, if, if I'm not living my life conforming to the instructions they would give me for how I'm supposed to build the boat of my life, but instead I'm doing it in the way that, that I feel like the Lord is showing me, um, there's just, I have a hope that this will be the ship that will carry me and my family, um, to a promised land. Do you have any thoughts on this, Anne? It's just, it's really, um, I don't know. It's feeling really tender because I, I feel like just recently I've gone through a similar little tiny journey. <laughs> so I'm straight, but I also just in the last few weeks figured out that I'm demisexual and it hadn't occurred to me, but it's, it, it really has clarified a lot of things and made a lot of things fall into place and make way more sense than they made before. And it's been very freeing to understand that piece of myself and to finally figure out. And the thing I keep saying is I was using other people's measuring sticks and I always came up short. And now I can invent my own and feel like it's okay for me to have my own sense of who I am and not have to, I mean, cause people would tell me you'll never get married if you don't. And then fill in the blank. I don't wear makeup. <laughs> like, I don't look like everybody else. I don't act like everybody else. Um, and they were wrong, you know, <laughs> but 
to be told you're not measuring up and it's going to mean that nobody will love you. Nobody will want you. Like that feeling is a really horrifying <laughs> feeling to have. And I, I, I didn't see it as, I just thought I was deficient. I didn't know that I was just different. And being able to accept my difference not as a problem, not as a, a bad thing, and that I don't have to let other people use their measuring sticks on me, <laughs> I can... I can say, yep, it's curious workmanship, <laughs> definitely. Um, it's just been such a relief. and and But it's still very new for me and very tender. So I'm, I'm all in my own head. I'm not yeah. thinking about <laughs> you and your journey. But I think it's so nice to be in a relationship where there's room for that, that kind of discovery, that kind of it's even growth, you know, that kind of new mindset is hopefully something that we all do as we grow, as we get older, as we discover different parts of ourselves or as we work on different parts of ourselves and, and blossom in different ways, hopefully. And that I love when he came to me in this moment and said, Hey, I've had this insight. I think, I think I'm queer. I was excited. And the same thing happened when I went to him and said, you know, I think I'm demisexual. And he went, okay, <laughs> let's figure out if we can understand this more. And that's what happens is the next thing you do is just talk, you know, and and think things through and go back and forth about, well, what about this? And what does that mean? And the answer is, I don't know. I've said, I don't know so many times to you in the last few weeks. <laughs> Thank you for being so vulnerable. This is the platform for vulnerability and you two are doing a great job and it just helps people when you're so authentic and vulnerable. So thank you, Anne. We, for listeners that aren't familiar with demisexual, will you just explain that? I don't love the term. Okay. Demi means half, like a demi plie is that little one instead of the really big grand plie. So like everybody else has grand sexuality <laughs> and I have like this little half sexuality. I don't love that way of thinking about it. But what it means in general is that instead of being visually attracted to, to the things that I see, I'm attracted to relationships and to connection. And I think a lot of people experience both a visual attraction and sort of an interpersonal connection attraction that helps them feel romantic or helps them feel like they want to be with somebody. Um, and I, I don't have the visual part. I, I just, I don't care. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care what people look like in a lot of ways. And, you know, all my friends growing up had boy bands plastered all over their bedroom walls and I didn't care, you know, and there's all these little tiny things that you sort of notice after a while. I mean, I guess I didn't notice for 40 years, but that it's like, oh yeah, I don't really fit. I don't, I don't think of things the same way. I'm not attracted to people in the same way. And Lauren is, was very popular with the ladies. Well, I don't think you would say very, but yeah, I think so. <laughs> he's always got <laughs> girls going after him. Um, so he's definitely handsome, and I appreciate that, but not in the same way as other people. And what I was really excited about and what made me want to be close to him was this lovely personality with these really good insights and, and 
very, I'm just honest in ways other people couldn't be. And, and also, I mean, he wrote poetry, played the cello. I mean, there's just so many really attractive attributes. He still cooks <laughs> wonderfully. Um, so that was what was attractive to me. I didn't realize that I was weird. <laughs> so, so when I, um, when I think about how people from the outside interpret things, when we share about our identities or we share about our relationship, um, I, I think it's just really interesting how often we have an opinion about something that we hear about someone else, or we make some assumptions. Um, and yet I think if we were able to, you know, dive deeply into anyone's history, anyone's relationship, we would find things that seem curious or strange to us. Um, but it's interesting how like, even when we were dating and engaged and people found out that she's six and a half years older than I am, some people thought that was really strange or they were like, how, how is that going to work? Because then maybe in their frame of reference that is less common. And then I'd meet somebody else. They're like, oh yeah, my aunt is 11 years older than my uncle. Um, and to them, it didn't seem strange. So, so I think there's lots of times when we have that experience of something about you doesn't make sense to me or it seems curious. And I guess we can decide in that point when we feel that a little bit of discomfort, what do we want to do? Do we want to pull away and say, this person seems unfamiliar or seems strange and I'm feeling uncomfortable, so I'm going to kind of take a step back? Or do we take a step forward? Do we lean in and say, I'm curious, I want to learn more. I want to understand, I want to connect with your experience. And, and so for me, that, that has been some of our journey as Anne has been talking about identifying as demisexual, it's an opportunity for me to say, tell me more. What does, what does that mean to you? What about that label fits for you? What about that label doesn't fit for you? Um, is that a label you want us to be using openly? Or is it something that it's just between us? Is it something that we want to tell family about? Um, help me understand what this word means to you and how you would like us to use it and what kind of role this label you want it to play in our lives and in your life. Um, and that involves some sitting with some discomfort and some questions, but that leaning in um, rather than saying, this is different. Here we are almost married for 12 years and there's this new thing and I'm uncomfortable. What do I do with it? Do I take a step back and say, I can't handle this right now? Like. I, th I think there's different reactions, but in my case, it was an opportunity to lean in. It's a great segment. I just love this line, can I show up as my full authentic self? And you were doing that in your marriage. And I love when Anne came to you and you came to her with these this further understanding of just um, the who you are, that you were excited to share that with each other. And the questions you asked each other yeah. are non-shaming, very open, help me understand. It's, we can all do what you just did for each other um, in our relationships and our friends. It's very insightful. I'm, I'm thinking of 
where you went a little bit with the boat um, mm-hmm. and your family's on the boat. And I just think, you know, because of who you are, a queer dad and a demisexual, is that the right mm-hmm. term? Mom, and you're lots of other things too, that all of that makes you um, get to this beautiful promised land. And somehow this part of your story as you're raising kids will be an asset to your family. Yeah, we really hope to create a home where our children always feel um, safe and loved no matter how they choose to identify. And we really um, try to speak openly about like about their uncles and um, that relationship. They participated in the wedding as well. Our daughter was a flower girl um, and our oldest son um, helped to carry the rings and um, and helping them see the importance of this. And and even like, like a small example. So I'm wearing this bracelet. Um, my twin brother gave this to me for my birthday. He sort of sent several gifts that were sort of celebrating queer pride, like really... Um, he really wanted to kind of help me feel seen, and I did. Um, and so this is a, a little braided leather bracelet, and it also has a metal part on it that's got, you know, the, the rainbow kind of pride flag on it. And so when I opened the box, of course, my kids, whenever a package arrives, are really excited. And so I'm opening this package, and my daughter's there, and it's like, what is it? What's in there? And so I saw this bracelet, and and it was really great where she was really excited about it, and I and I... And she's like, oh, what is that? And my wife said, that's, um, you know, that rainbow, like that means something really special to daddy. And um, able for her to see, like, we don't need to go through all of the details and all the history of like the pride flag or what it means. Um, But just for her to know, like, this rainbow means something special to daddy. And hopefully that it's like that there's a safe space for if any of our children at any point have places where out in the world they feel other or they feel different, they maybe feel rejected. We hope that they always can come home. Um, like, like the prodigal son that they, you know, might have that fear. The prodigal son worries like when he goes home that maybe he won't be accepted. We hope that they'll have as little of that in their mind as possible, that that they don't even question this, that they know they can always come home. And and so I think that that's um, something that we're, we're really hopeful about. I love what Anne said. That's something that's really special to your dad. Mm-hmm. There's no shame in that comment. There's no embarrassment about who you are and and keeping that from your child. What a wonderful, you know, I just love that. And, and as you're creating this boat, the family boat, um, I'm thinking as you got married and as you started to have kids, that boat kind of left, you know, like Nephi's boat, and you're on the water now, or I don't know what the promised land represents, you know. In some ways, you're there at times. In some ways, we're back on the boat. We have these wonderful promised land experiences along the way. So I don't know. But I love curious workmanship. Yeah. And that that's divine curious workmanship, that that's, that's the, whole per, the whole premise of your personal revelation reading that is, and correct me if I misspeak, that you are who God intended you to be. Right. Even though it doesn't make sense to me 
Like when I, I had thoughts as a teenager and I still have thoughts where there's parts of this that seem unnecessarily difficult, um, have been especially painful, times when I've been rejected by other people or felt really hurt. Like there are things about it that don't always make sense, but then there are also parts that seem really wonderful or parts that have unanswered questions. So I believe that there is a design to this, but just like Nephi building his boat, I feel like I'm trying to follow the instructions that the Lord is giving me, but it's almost like it's a blueprint that doesn't really make sense to me right when I look at it. It's not like you look at the blueprint and you say, oh, yeah, I know exactly what I'm building. This makes total sense. I've done this lots of times before. Instead, it's something that's just full of questions. And so I have that feeling that the Lord is in charge of it, but I also have a lot of questions and have times where it even doesn't make sense to me, which I probably imagine was part of Nephi's experience building the boat. It didn't even make sense to him. It's a great segment. Makes me want to go reread that. And just, the, I love that the scriptures are just sort of this gateway to personal revelation, that that story then opened what God wanted you to understand about yourself. And I think so much of the scripture reading for me is as a parent giving me insights into my kids or as a local leader or different parts of our lives. I'm also kind of thinking of the social constructs, if that's the right vocabulary, that created this way of seeing for you. And you saw these other girls, and that had all these posters up, and that just wasn't you. And and now you're at the point where you're you, and of course, Lauren just loves you. But I recognize that our culture creates these constructs that if we don't fit into that, it's really can create a, a difficult feeling. And I'm thinking of President Ballard's conference talk in April, where he talked so much about creating a feeling of belonging. Um, and that, you know, we need to be able to do a better job of helping people feel like they belong and that there's, you know, even people with curious workmanship, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that that's from God and that's who they are. And, and if we can help them not having to spend all their emotional capital to fit in, but we can help them feel like they belong the way they are, and their gifts are needed the mm -hmm. way they are, then we become the body of Christ that Paul talks about in Corinthians 12. So, Yeah, just, just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that the Lord is not behind it all. Go ahead, Anne, too. Um, I think one of the things that when we talk in these terms that we tend to leave out is the work. I mean, I think it's a really apt metaphor because... There's a lot of workmanship involved, and we have to do most of it ourselves. And so, so that creating that feeling of belonging really depends in a major way on doing it yourself inside of yourself first. And that takes work. It takes thought. It probably takes heartache. It takes exploring. It takes, I mean, it's a process to figure out and be okay with whatever you discover, right? <laughs> and so, I I also don't want people to be discouraged if it isn't easy and to go through this process and and that kind of work that really I mean so much of the kind of self-discovery where you're open to possibilities 
and you're open to realizing something about yourself that you don't appreciate or that you <laughs> don't want to embrace. But then when you go through some of those things, there's a clarity that comes. There's a, a the ability to stand on your own two feet emotionally and say, okay, yeah, no, this is who I am. And when you can do that, it's so much easier to open your arms to other people and embrace them because they're not going to knock you over. They're not going to like, even if they judge you or they reject you or they don't respond the way you want them to, or they are not grateful when you do really nice things or whatever it is that we kind of rely on other people to, to help us know that we're a good person or that we did it right. Or the, the more sturdy we can be, and rooted and grounded in the things that matter to us or in having gone through that process of self-discovery and looking in the mirror sometimes is hard and all that stuff, then to, you can really embrace other people from a space of confidence, maybe is the word, and create belong belonging for other people without having to demand things in return or without having to, and I'm not there yet, <laughs> but I think, I think we do a disservice to ourselves when we assume that the work shouldn't have to happen. If God's in charge, if God made this blueprint, then there should be sort of an Alma the Younger experience or a, a extreme home makeover of self or whatever it is. And it should just happen really freely and naturally. And yeah, it does. But yet also there's workmanship involved. Like you got to sweat pound some nails and uh, do some redesigning. And I don't know, it, it's, it's a process. Letting it be a process is important and not having arrived at the ability to create a space of belonging for every single person is okay. It's okay to, and I've seen, I mean, those same people in Lauren's family that struggled you know, to, with what do I do about this wedding? And uh, they have gone through, they've done the work and they've gone through this process of self-discovery and what does family mean to me and how am I going to approach this? And, and that struggle is, is real, but it, it, it does amazing things. And the outcome is this really close knit. I mean, they're not done. <laughs> Nobody's done, but um, those connections are, are treasured, I would say. More things either of you'd like to share? I think just a, a last thing is about um, unanswered questions. So much of my experience involved, and, and still does, involves things where I don't have all of the answers to the questions. And like we talked about before, there's this normal, natural tendency to want to fill in the blanks. We really, we really just hate to leave the question marks hanging, right? And um, there's a quote that's been really meaningful to me over my life. And I think to me really speaks a lot to my experience as a, as a queer person. Um, and this is, a, this is a quote from the Austrian poet Rilke. Um, it came from a series of letters that he was exchanging with a young man. So this this 19-year-old, um, he was a cadet in 
uh, like a military school and also had an interest in writing poetry. And so he started writing letters to Rilke, basically asking like, could you take a look at my work and what do you think of it? But then what ends up happening is over... Um, over a course of multiple years, um, like between 1902 and 1908, they're writing letters back and forth um, and talking about life and all kinds of questions. Um, and it's interesting because Rilke does not critique his poetry. And also this young man, his name is Franz, Franz Kappus. So Franz is trying to decide, should I continue in a military career? Or should I pursue more of a literary career, like write poetry and other writing projects? And Rilke, of course, doesn't tell him what to do with his life. Um, but he says this quote. He says, I want to beg you as much as I can, dear sir, to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And that idea of being patient towards everything that's unsolved in your heart trying to live the questions and trust that maybe at some point in the future you will live into the answer really resonates with me. And when I was looking up the quote for this podcast, looking up some of the background information, I found something that I didn't previously know. Um, so when we think about Franz, this young man, I think people would already have their own story that they want to tell for him. And so if you're all about living your passions and living a life of creativity, people would say, pursue poetry. And then there might be some people who are more pragmatically minded and say, poetry is a terrible career. Stick with the military. That's a, a good, solid income um, and a dependable job. And everyone will have their idea of how Franz should live his life. But in the end, Franz is the one who decided what he wanted to do. And we might hear what he chose and think, oh, he really should have chosen this other thing. But that's because we are putting ourselves in his position and making a decision for him. But he ultimately decides to um, finish his studies and serves in his military for 15 years and keeps writing in various formats. But he never became very famous for his writing and in general is not really a famous person in, in the course of history. Um, but... Rilke didn't tell him what path to, to take. And we shouldn't tell Franz, like we shouldn't tell him his story for him either. Like he got to decide what felt right for him. And, and so, but I just love in this quote, this idea that like, it might even feel like a foreign language, these, these unsolved questions. Like you're looking at a book that's in a language you can't even understand or read. Like if I picked up a book in Japanese, I don't speak Japanese. I couldn't read any of it. Um, and that's maybe what it feels like to some people who are trying to figure out their sexual orientation is it's like they're in this room and they're, it's, there's places that are locked or books that are written in a language they can't even understand. And they're they just so much want the answers. And so I guess as part of this building this boat with curious workmanship or living your life authentically, it involves a lot of unanswered questions or questions that aren't answered now, but might be answered in the future, but maybe not. Um, and trying to be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart. And so that, um, 
that is something that I would say is kind of a, a final thought. Like if, if I were to, if I could only say like one thing to like a young queer person who's trying to figure out um, what their life is going to look like and what's going to fit for them and are they going to find someone to be with or are they going to still feel welcome in their family or what are, what's going to happen with maybe their LDS, what's going to happen with the church, all of that, I would tell them kind of like Rilke, like, I can't tell you how to live your life and I can't make the decisions for you. But like this quote again, like, I want to beg you as much as I can, dear young queer person, dear person questioning, not sure what your life is going to look like, to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions. It's a great finishing segment. I think we'll just leave it right there. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Lauren Brown, for joining us on this episode of Listen, Learn. Love, thank you for our listeners. Um, thank you for brave and courageous people like you two that step forward to share your story and help us better understand. This is Richard Osley, your host, signing off. Thank you.